Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Today is a special episode for the podcast for three different reasons. For The first reason is that it is the 100th episode of the podcast. And the second reason is that it's the first ever live-streamed episode. Almost all of the episodes that I did before this have been pre-recorded. They've been audio only. You couldn't see me or my guest. This is the first time that we're doing this on the on the podcast and it will be available later in audio only form on stitcher podbean spotify uh anchor the place where you can usually listen to it um but right now it's obviously not up there and the third reason is that we have the number one christian philosopher in the world on as my guest dr william lane craig yeah, it's amazing to me to think that 100 episodes of the podcast have already gone by. It seems like just yesterday that I, I had the idea uh, to start a podcast. I remember uh, I was I was thinking I remember distinctly thinking about starting the pod uh, a podcast for Cerebral Faith while I was waiting for my flight uh, to Colorado for the 2018 Evangelical Theological Society conference. Just thinking thinking about it at the airport. I had a long time to wait and I was just, you know, th- thinking about it. I was thinking, how am I going to record it? How much time am I going to be able to devote to this? Will I even be able to do it? And uh, where does one go to upload the MP3 file? Like I didn't even know how to I didn't even know how to do it. I had to watch like YouTube videos and talk to people who doing who had done it before just to uh, <laughs> just to know how to do it. Um and I was like, well, how do I go about interviewing guests? I guess I use Skype. Uh, you know, how do you record Skype calls? And so I just had a lot of stuff to f- figure out. But it's just hard to believe that that much time has passed, that we've got 100 episodes out. But uh, enough of the nostalgia tri- uh, trip. Dr. Craig, it's an honor to have you on the program. Say hello to the audience. Hello, and I did not realize it was your 100th episode, so I thank you for the honor of uh, joining you for that. Yeah, in fact, uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Like, I wanted to have, like, the most influential Christian philosopher on my podcast for number 100th. And um, and it's not just because well, you're, it's not just because you're, you have such a major influence. You've had a, you have had a major influence in my own life, um, I've learned a lot about natural theology and the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, you were my first exposure to Molinism, and uh, you've influenced me so much that when I talk about some of the same t- uh, subjects you do, people people tell me that I sound like you. <laughs> well, thank you. So uh, we got some. We got some. Uh, ep- I got some questions of my own that I've pre-prepared. I've I've sent to you, and and you could think them over ahead of time. But we're also going to be fielding some questions from the audience. Um, Very good. Uh, and I don't. I guess I'll just kind of like oscillate between the questions I've prepared and the ones that in the audience. Um, so the first question that um, I have is 
on the ontological argument. Um, it's been argued that uh, all that all that the argument does is establish that a maximally great being is strictly logically possible, but it doesn't mean that a maximally great being is broadly logically possible. So how would you how would you respond to this objection? That the, the objection that all the argument does is just establish strict logical possibility, mm -hmm. but you can't make that leap from strict to broad. Um, so is there a way to argue that a maximally great being is broadly logically possible in all possible worlds? What the argument establishes is that if God's existence is broadly logically possible, then God actually exists. So it aims at doing more than trying to show that God's existence is broadly logically possible. It's an argument that God actually exists. And so the question is, with respect to that first premise, that it's possible that a maximally great being exists, do you think that that is broadly logically possible or not? Uh, and it seems to me that the notion of a being that is omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect uh, in every possible world is a coherent concept. Uh, and therefore, that it's perfectly reasonable to think that this is broadly logically possible. Moreover, several of the other arguments for the existence of God issue in the existence of a metaphysically necessary being. For example, the Leibnizian cosmological argument, or the uh, moral argument, or a conceptualist argument from abstract objects and necessary truths. Um, and so those would give some sort of a posteriori justification for thinking that it's plausible that a metaphysically necessary being that unites all these attributes is indeed a coherent idea. So I think that the theist is quite within his rights in thinking that that first premise is indeed true in a broadly logical sense. Uh, and it's up to the atheist, I think, then to show some sort of incoherence in the idea of a maximally great being. Okay, so so it's the pr the the premise is actually stating uh, when it uses the word the like the phrasing it is possible that mm -hmm. it's actually meaning broadly logically uh, possible that right so, right the uh, the uh, questioner had it wrong when he wanted to talk about strict logical possibility. The, the question is, is the first premise merely epistemically possible? And when you talk about something being epistemically possible, you mean, well, for all we know. For all we know, it's true. For all we know, it's false. Um, and so the question is, is that first premise not merely epistemically possible, but is it broadly logically possible? Okay, so it's it's more than just like... Like, you know, it's strictly logically possible for something to come into being from nothing. It doesn't violate any of the laws of logic, but it's not broadly logically possible that something right. could pop into being from nothing. Right. Yeah. And if if anybody is is like not well versed in modal logic and they just don't know what we're talking about here, um, I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not going to rehash the modal terminology behind this argument uh, you could just both craig and i have stuff on the ontological argument on our websites and and 
we've got good content on this. So I would just recommend that you go check that out. Craig's got a really good, like five, six, seven minute animated video on reasonablefaith.org right. on, on the ontological argument. And you could go check that out just to get a, you know, just to get your feet wet into what this argument's all about. So now I'm going to take a question from the audience. This is from Travis Lee. He says, question for Dr. Craig, do you think the soul-making theodicy is the best answer to the problem of evil? No, I tend to put my um, eggs in the basket of the free will defense, um, which says that um, evil in the world is um, best explained uh, as being the result of a disorder in the free will of creatures, uh, and that God is providentially in control of history, but in such a way as to respect the free decisions of creatures, so that ultimately his ends will be achieved through their creaturely free choices. And this may churn up a lot of suffering and evil uh, along the way. Okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and this is one of those, this is one of those areas where people say, I talk like you, I just, I released like three YouTube videos here on the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel about the, uh, about the problem of evil. And I quoted you like maybe four or five times. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, the free will defense is probably, it's probably the best defense against, I think both versions of the problem of evil, but especially yeah. the logical version, because I mean, it, it's possible that you know, if God wants a world of free creatures, that no matter how he, no matter what worlds he creates, there, there could there's there could be some who go wrong, and so it's not true. So then it's just a question of well, which which one best uh, achieves my goals? You know, Tim, Doctor Tim Stratton had a had an article where he compared it to Dr. Strange looking at the 14 trillion alternate universes. Um, and so <laughs> we can imagine like God looking at all the different feasible worlds and wondering, okay, which one has the biggest ratio of, of good versus evil of saved and lost, which one ends up with my son on the cross to die for the sins yeah. of the world and all that. It is, there's, a, there's a lot that God takes into account when it comes to deciding which world is, you know, which world is, the most, you know, the one he wants to actualize. Right. And that underlines the point that we're simply not in a position to make the probabilistic judgments about uh, whether or not God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil and suffering in the world. We're, we're just not in a position to make those kind of judgments with any confidence. Yeah. I usually... I I like your I like your analogies, uh, your illustrations of chaos theory and the movie Sliding Doors to show how even yeah. just one single tiny insignificant event can actually have radical effects on the future. Um, yeah. And sometimes I sometimes I resort to time travel analogies where somebody goes back in time and they just change one thing, they come back and everything is different. <laughs> I like yeah. I like to I like to say that God is a time meddler without the time travel. He, uh -huh. he does the, he does the meddling in advance. He knows yeah, in, in virtue of his middle knowledge. Yeah, he knows that. Okay, if I allow this, then these set of events will occur, and if if I don't allow it, then these set of events will occur. And you know, he just knows. You know, this this could be something that involves suffering, 
but what's the end game? The end game might justify allowing the present evil, and we just can't. We just, you know, we're just not in a position to know what would come about from that. Now, uh, Travis Lee, I think he has a follow-up question here. It's also about the problem of evil. On he asks, on the problem of evil, do you think Molinism provides a good free will defense? I think I think we just talked about that. Yes, exactly. And I would say a good free will theodicy, um, because what Molinism shows is that a god with middle knowledge could providentially permit evils which to us in our limited framework would appear to be gratuitous and unnecessary, and yet in his providence would ultimately redound to uh, the good and to his purposes. So given middle knowledge, it's just virtually impossible to say with respect to some instance of horrendous suffering, God probably doesn't have morally sufficient reasons for allowing this to happen. Yeah, uh, and I, I like using um, examples in the Bible in which, you know, people at, you know, boots on the ground ha could have, they were like, why is God letting this happen? But then later you keep reading the text and you're like, oh, this is why. Um, like the story of Joseph, you know, why yes. did God not, you know, come down from heaven and strike his brothers down to prevent him from selling uh, Joseph into slavery? Well, later we know it was that whole series of events led up to him interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams, and he saved a whole bunch of people from starvation, including Jacob and, you know, the whole messianic bloodline and Jesus's crucifixion. Nobody's standing yeah. at the cross. They, they weren't expecting a crucified Messiah. They were like, you know, why is God letting this happen? But later they, you know, Jesus rises from the dead and, he spends 40 days with them, and we read in the epistles that it happened because that's how he purchased our salvation. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting. The greatest evil you can imagine, God's son on the cross, brought about one of the greatest goods for us, which is our yeah. salvation. You know, salvation yeah. for billions of people down through the ages. Exactly. At the death of Christ and the passion of Christ wrought immeasurable good in the world by permitting that terrible instance of innocent suffering. So next question is, um, and this is a question that I have about the, going back to the ontological argument, how effective have you found this argument to hmm. be in evangelism? Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people just, they just can't get past all of the abstract terminology. Uh -huh. Well, Honestly, I have to say, I don't know that I've ever used it in an evangelistic setting. Usually I'll present a cumulative case for God's existence that will include several arguments, including the ontological argument. Um, and I, I can't really say uh, how persuasive the other person has found it. I will say this, though, that I have just been astonished at the correspondence that we receive from many people saying how persuasive they have found this argument. And of all of the animated videos that we've produced on various arguments for the existence of God, it is the one on the ontological argument that has the 
greatest viewership, over 2 million views of this video. So clearly, this argument is scratching some sort of itch. Yeah, I, I it's it's one of I have like a list of my top five favorites, and the ontological argument is in there. And here's why: it only rests on one premise. Everybody grants the rest of them, and secondly, it gets you all of the superlative attributes of God: omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. And in my book, the case for the one true God, I actually use it to sort of you know as a litmus test comparing all of the conceptions of deity in the world you know poly, all of the polytheistic gods uh the muslim god and i show how really this argument gets you to a uniquely con christian conception of god because only the christian god is maximally great or at least the judeo-christian yeah uh, I, I I give an argument that you know other people have formulated for the Trinity, which is you know you know in order for God to be loving in possible worlds in which only He exists, He's got to be multipersonal. Mm -hmm. So I would you know I would go a step further, but yeah, at, if you but if you don't find that argument compelling, it gets you at least to the the Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. Now Andrew Risk asks. What is your response to the objection raised by the popular show The Good Place? That is, heaven will eventually get boring, and that it's the fact that life ends which gives it meaning. I haven't seen that program, but I think that the answer is the one that Augustine and other theologians perceive, namely that God is an infinite good and is therefore inexhaustible. Only an infinite good could satisfy our longings for eternity. Any finite good would grow boring and cloying after enough time, but an infinite good is inexhaustible and can satisfy our deepest longings forever. By contrast, if our lives end in death, I think that puts a question mark behind the significance of anything that we do, because ultimately it makes no difference what you do or think, you all end up the same. Yeah, I've I've heard this uh, heaven will get boring after a while objection before, and I think it's partly due, in fact, due to the fact that we they have kind of a cartoonish picture of heaven like they think of yes. everybody just floating around pl playing harps for all eternity and that would terribly, boring. <laughs> a terribly inadequate concept of god the, uh, as the man in the sky or something of that sort they don't understand the classical concept of god as the greatest good and the maximally great being it's, yeah. it's sort of sad in a way it's a commentary on how poorly people understand what Christian theism really affirms. Yeah. Now, uh, I know you've been doing a lot of study on the historical Adam, and your your book, mm -hmm. In the Quest for the Historical Adam, which is coming out in September, it's going to give us the results of your research. Uh, research. I'm interested in this because over the past two to three years, I've been heavily researching the primeval history myself. The book's mm -hmm. description on Amazon says, quote, 
Craig embarks upon an interdisciplinary survey of scientific evidence to determine where Adam could be plausibly located in the evolutionary history of humankind, ultimately determining that Adam lived between 750,000 and 100,000 years ago. Million, as a, oh, oh, one million. Okay, I read, I misread that. <laughs> uh, one million years ago, as a member, as a member of the archaic human species Homo heidelbergensis, end quote. Um, now, my question is, that's a long, long time. How do you make sense of the genealogies? Um, I've, I heard, I've heard Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe said that he doesn't think you can stretch them back any farther than 100,000 years. Like, how do you... How do you have Adam at 750,000 years, but Abraham at about 6,000, 5,000, 4,000 years ago? By taking the primeval history to belong to the literary genre of mytho history. The difference between Rana and I uh, and me on this is that he doesn't take this to be a mythical genre. He takes this to be literal history. And so taken, he's absolutely right. You can't stretch it back that far. But I would say this is not a literal history. This is a mytho history that is only about 2,000 years long. It's very short uh, from the time of the creation until the flood is only around 1,600 years. And from the flood until uh, Abraham, it's only around 300 and some years. So this is a very, very tiny, short history that I think is uh, a, a mytho history and the genealogies are intended to fill that short little time of around 2000 years. Yeah. And so, and by mytho history, you're not, you're not saying it's all made up because I, I see a no. lot of people say that. Right. You kind of asked a loaded question there without any background. Uh, and so for those listeners who don't understand these genres, it's important to realize that for folklorists, um, there are three types of folklore that they explore, myths, legends, and folk tales. And myths are stories that are embraced in a culture that try to anchor present day realities and institutions in the primordial past. And I think that this is clearly what the primeval history is meant to do. It's filled with what are called etiological motifs that try to ground things like the Sabbath, uh, marriage, uh, farming, and things of this sort in these events of the primeval past. Uh, and that is not to prejudice its truth. It's this use of myth by folklorists is not like the popular use of myth today where you might talk about uh, it's a myth that by eating high fat, low carb, you will lose weight. Yeah, so so it's like um, it is real. So your understanding is like it is real history. These are things that actually happened, but they're sort of painted up in mythological motifs. And, you know, it's not it's not like everything is woodenly literal, like, like someone would right. write today. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, 
that's that's what I that's what I've been telling you guys. Um, would it be would it be fair to say that your um, your term mytho history is similar to uh, John Walton's imagistic history or Tremper Longman's yes. uh, theological history? Yes, uh, I would. Um, the term mytho history is not my own. It was coined by the great uh, Assyriologist, Torquil Diakobson, to characterize this kind of literature. And so this is a, a term of art that uh, was used by Jakobson, uh, and therefore I think is part of the scholarly literature and deserves to be used rather than inventing a new term like imagistic history, which doesn't draw the connection with myth that Jakobson's term does. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that's that's kind of that's kind of where I I am with the primeval history. I, I do believe the primeval history is history. These are real people in a real past, but like you know, I'm to, I'm. You can you can tell actual historical events in a poetic or mythological way. I mean, good grief! All you have to do is just turn to the Psalms, and you can find all sorts of historical events being talked about with very colorful imagery, like um, mm -hmm. you know, so songs about the deliverance of of Israel from Egypt, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, recently, well, at least recently for me, on the Reasonable Faith podcast, uh, you talked about how you're not quite ready to write certain other species of homonyms out of the human race. And that's, that's one of the reasons why you want to place Adam as far back as you do, mm -hmm. because these other homonyms seem to show evidence of rational, abstract thinking, spirituality, uh, aesthetic appreciation, yes. uh, things theologians typically associate with the image of God. Could you talk about like some of the anthropological evidence that suggests that Neanderthals or maybe Heidelbergendus might also bear image of God-like properties? Yes. What's important here is that it's not just that theologians associate this with the image of God, but that paleoanthropologists associate these cognitive behaviors with modern cognitive capacities. And you see that things uh, that evince this sort of modern cognitive capacity were uh, present in ancient species like Neanderthals. I have a question of the week coming out on this in just a couple of weeks, but let me just mention three items that are particularly striking. Um, the first is the so-called Kronigan spears. These are hand-carved javelins that were discovered in an open pit mine uh, in Germany. Um, these spears are incredibly beautifully crafted. They are carved so that they taper toward the butt so that one third of the weight of the spear is in the front uh, part of the spear, which makes it suitable for throwing. And when these were discovered, uh, scientists made wooden replicas of these spears and they gave them to German Olympic athletes to test. 
and without any sort of prior training with these spears, what the athletes discovered was that these ancient spears were comparable to modern Olympic javelins in terms of their range, their accuracy when thrown, and their penetration when they hit the target. Now, these spears were used in hunting herd animals like horses. They were found with the remains of a, a herd of horses that had been pursued by these hunters, which implies advanced planning and probably communication among these hunters. Now, here's the amazing thing. These spears are dated to a layer that dates between 300,000 to 400,000 years ago. That is even earlier than Neanderthals and Homo sapiens uh, in Europe. That goes back to Homo heidelbergensis. So this indicates very advanced cognitive ability and technology among this uh, early archaic hominin species. Second thing that I would point to is the incredible constructions in a cave in France called Bruniquel Cave. This cave had been closed by a landscape since the Pleistocene epic around 11,000 years ago and was only opened in 1990 so that we know that the um, constructions found inside were undisturbed during all those thousands of years. And what the archaeologists discovered was about 330 meters into the cave in pitch darkness, pitch blackness, there are these strange rings of stalagmites that have been cut to certain specified lengths and then stacked upon each other uh, in layers to form these rings. And then they have posts or stays to hold the rings in place. And there are remains of fires that were burned on various places of these rings. Now, nobody knows what these constructions were for, uh, but they evince a, well, there's nothing like them in, in, in ancient prehistoric uh, times that shows an incredible ability, again, not simply of technological capacity, but of advanced planning uh, and organization to bring about something like this. And these constructions have been dated to 176,000 years ago, uh, which again puts them prior to the advent of Homo sapiens in Europe. These were Neanderthal constructions. Then the third thing that I would point to was discovered just last year in 2020, archaeologists discovered a piece of string manufactured by Neanderthals. This is a three-ply cord that involves taking fibers from inside the bark of a conifer tree and twisting the fibers clockwise to form a string. Then you twist the three strings counterclockwise to form a three-ply cord. 
And the archaeologist who discovered this said this requires a mathematical ability for complex thinking that is comparable to what's necessary for language use, which is a hallmark of modern cognitive capacity. And again, these were Neanderthal uh, manufacture. So those would just be three examples of what are called archaeological signatures that indicate a modern cognitive capacity in these Neanderthal cousins of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the. I, I'm I'm inclined to push Adam way back, like you, because I, you know, what whether you take the image of God as being uh, the the mental faculties of rationality, free will, uh, moral knowledge, or whether you or whether you track with me and say that they're prerequisites to what the image of God is, which is the the function of representing God to the rest of creation, imaging. Either way, I, I just I just can't see God. You know, we have these rational, intelligent beings walking around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before God finally decides to give a special revelation. I, I just well, I, these were these were clearly not brutes or beasts. These were intelligent people like ourselves, who eventually interbred with Homo sapiens um, and sired children. All of us carry Neanderthal DNA in our genomes. So these are in part our ancestors, and it, it's just frankly insulting to them to characterize them as irrational beasts. Yeah, they're not they're not like the stupid cave the stupid cave dwellers cartoons depict them as. So I think that's the that's why I was so I was so put off when President Biden accused the Republican opponents of being guilty of Neanderthal thinking. I thought <laughs> Neanderthal thinking, that's modern cognitive capacity. And, and it's just an insult to Neanderthals to use this as a a slur. Yeah, <laughs> you you could you could say it's racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, literally, that's yeah. right. It is. <laughs> They're not around to be offended, but it it is it is racism. Yeah, so, you can abuse them because they're not here to protest or complain about it. Yeah. So, okay, I know you guys in the chat, you you want your questions answered, and I will get to that. I just kind of don't want to jump around topics, and I had several questions about Craig's upcoming book, In Quest of the Historical Adam. So I got one more, and then I'll get to some of you guys in the in the live in the live chat. Um, and my next question is: Is there any evidence that Homo heidelbergensis lived somewhere in the oh. Middle East. Uh, I know different scholars they they debate where the Garden of Eden was, you know, um, but I think from what I've read anyway, they all seem to be pretty much in agreement that um, that the Garden of Eden was not in Africa. It was somewhere in the Middle Eastern region. Right. And for me, this is all this has been a, a hang up as an evolutionary creationist because I just I think, well, how do we get coming out of Africa, human beings arrive, you know, coming out of Africa, getting them all the way over there 
to where yeah. Eden is supposed to be. And if if Homo Heidelbergensis was in that area and he was like rational, like we like Adam is depicted yeah. in in the scriptures, that would be a major point, in my opinion, for your for what you're proposing. Well, score one for Homo Heidelbergensis then, because he was Yay. in the Middle East. Um, these out of Africa theories of human origins are talking about the origins of Homo sapiens. Our species migrated out of Africa. But prior to the origin of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, uh, Homo Heidelbergensis was all over the place. Uh, Ian Tattersall of the American Museum of Natural History has characterized him as a truly cosmopolitan species uh, so that he ranges throughout the Middle East, through Europe, Asia, uh, and into Africa. And what happened was that as Homo heidelbergensis migrated down into Africa, his descendants evolved into Homo sapiens, whereas in Europe, uh, his descendants gave rise to Neanderthals. And eventually, uh, those Homo sapiens would migrate out of Africa and begin to mate with Neanderthals. Um, so that b before all that, you have Homo heidelbergensis, who, as I say, uh, was not restricted to any one of those continents. Okay, yeah, that that's great. Um, I'm looking forward to the book. Um, you got you guys watching. You can pre-order the book on Amazon right now. It's it's ready to pre-order, but you won't it won't show up on your doorstep until uh, September. So now on to audience questions. Um, oh wait a minute, I already asked already asked that one. Um, so Slam RN asks, in view of what Dr. Craig just said, um, this was a good ways up. Um, I I think. This has to do with the afterlife. He says, "Does the godless uh, do, does he think the godless also live forever?" Yes, so long as by live you don't mean have eternal life in the biblical sense. So uh, they would have bios; they would continue to exist, but they would not have a personal relationship with God. They would be forever separated. From God, and uh, that would be the view I would take. I don't see any good reason to think that the uh, godless are annihilated. Yeah, this would be one of the very few things I would disagree with Dr. Craig on. We uh, we agree on almost everything, but there's a small handful of things, and I am an annihilationist, but we're not we're uh, we're not going to debate that here. Uh, now, Travis War, not Travis, Travis Lee asks. Uh, question for Dr. Craig, am I rationally justified in believing in the veracity of my experience of Christ during personal worship? Yes, um, I've been working on this question of the rationality of Christian belief. And one of the very interesting um, new wrinkles in epistemology is called phenomenal conservatism. And basically what phenomenal conservatism affirms is that if it seems to you to be the case, that P, then you are justified in believing that P so long as you have no defeaters 
of P. So if in worship it seems to you that you are communing with Christ, you're perfectly rational to believe that you are communing with Christ on the basis of that seeming, unless you have some sort of overriding defeater of that experience. Um, Sam, he's a deist friend of mine, and uh, we we've <laughs> I've mentioned uh, I've alluded to him several times on the on the podcast be, uh, because we've had like so many discussions and debates and comment sections on the website and stuff. But he could uh, he couldn't um, he, he couldn't join the live stream, so he sent me his, his he sent me his questions ahead of time. He's got two. He, he divides. He divides them as serious and non-serious. And the serious question is about the atonement. He asks, quote, How is it just for Jesus, an innocent person, to be punished in the place of a guilty person? Note my objection about how legal uh, note my objection about how legal doesn't equal right. Citing examples of our legal system doing it doesn't answer my objection as I and other critics would just say that our legal system is being immoral and unjust and I would even support jury nullification to stop those unjust laws from being enforced end quote your friend is free of course to disagree with our American justice system uh, in terms of its morality if he wants but I have to say that the field of philosophy, which has discussed most extensively the nature of justice and the theory of punishment, is the philosophy of law. And an unbelievable amount of intellectual effort has gone into those questions for centuries. And therefore, one must not dismiss lightly or cavalierly uh, what these philosophers of law and legal theorists have determined to be just. Um, so I do think we need to listen to these philosophers of law and legal theorists, uh, especially when talking about punishment and whether punishment is just or not. If you if you won't listen to them, then I would ask, I guess, where do you get then your theory of justice? and your criterion of justice if you reject thinking of philosophers of law and legal theorists. Now, to turn to the objection itself, this is undoubtedly the most important objection to uh, a penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. But what's noteworthy is that the uh, people who press this objection never articulate it in detail and never offer any defense of the premises for this argument. And your friend is typical in this regard. He offered no argument uh, and no defense of any premises. So how does the argument go? Well, it seems to me that it goes something like this. Premise one, God is perfectly just. Two, if God is perfectly just, he cannot punish an innocent person. Three, Christ was an innocent person. Four, therefore, God cannot punish Christ. Five, if God cannot punish Christ, then penal substitution is false. So from those five steps, it would follow that if God is perfectly just, then penal substitution is false. 
So that seems to be the argument. Now, how what might one say about this? Well, it seems to me that the first premise of the argument is ambiguous and that all of the other premises are eminently disputable. Um, do you want me to go on and go into this in more detail, or or? Yeah, go go on. This is this is okay. um, this this is a re this is a real hangup of his, and I I haven't studied this issue like you have, and so I'm not equipped to to deal with it like you are. All right. Well, the first premise is ambiguous when it says God is perfectly just. What theory of justice are you presupposing? when you affirm that. Um, theories of justice fall into two very broad classes, what's called a retributive theory of justice and what are called consequentialist theories of justice. On a retributive theory of justice, punishment is just because the guilty deserve it. Uh, the essence of a retributive theory of justice is that the guilty deserve punishment, and therefore the punishment of the guilty is just. But on a consequentialist theory of justice, punishment is justified in view of the good consequences that it has, such as deterrence of crime, uh, sequestration of dangerous criminals from society, and the reform of the character of those who are uh, punished. Now, if you adopt a consequentialist theory of justice, it's easy to justify God's punishing an innocent person. Indeed, uh, it's common coin that on consequentialist theories of justice, uh, punishment of the innocent can be just. For example, in view of the deterrence value of doing that. Um, and so on such a theory, uh, it's easy to justify God's punishing Christ. Namely, it saves the human race from utter and eternal destruction. Uh, and that would be an overriding consequence that on a consequentialist theory uh, would um, allow God to punish the innocent. So the objector must be uh, presupposing, I take it, some sort of retributive theory of punishment in saying that God is perfectly just. Now, in that case, I think the other premises then become eminently disputable. Um, to take just, uh, well, let me take the fifth point, the fifth premise, that if God uh, cannot punish Christ, then penal substitution is false. That premise is uh, denied by thinkers such as uh, John Stott and uh, I. Howard Marshall, who would say that God did not punish Christ for our sins. Rather, Christ bore the fate which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us instead. So Christ was not punished by God for our sins. Rather, he bore the harsh treatment that we deserved as the punishment for our sins. So on this kind of non-punitive theory, uh, penal substitution does not require that God punish Christ. Uh, 
for our sins. Christ simply has to bear the harsh treatment that would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us. And so that uh, formulation of penal substitution adroitly avoids the objection. Finally, let me make one uh, further point. There's much more to be said, but suppose you do think that God did punish Christ. Is that something he could not have done? No, because I would deny the premise that Christ was an innocent person. Now, certainly Christ was a virtuous person, but in virtue of the doctrine of the imputation of sin, Christ was declared or reckoned legally guilty by God for our sins. My sins were imputed to Christ so that he is declared legally guilty and therefore can be justly punished for my sins. Now, we mustn't confuse imputation with infusion. The idea is not that my sins were infused into Christ, that Christ suddenly became an evil, grasping, selfish, uh, cruel person. No, no, he was a paragon of moral virtue and righteousness. But he was declared legally guilty by God in virtue of the imputation of my sins to him. So as long as the doctrine of the imputation of sins is true, it just completely um, removes or defeats this argument based upon the false premise that Christ was an innocent person. Okay, uh, Sam. When you, whenever you get around to watching this, I hope that um, I hope that was satisfactory to you. Um, where, by the way, I think imputation is true. There's a verse, but I can never remember where it is. I always have to look it up. But where, where is that? Is that in Second oh, Corinthians? Uh, second, yes, Second Corinthians five twenty one. Uh, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse has a double imputation in view. Our sins are imputed to Christ, and in turn, his righteousness or God's righteousness is imputed to us. Okay, yeah. I thought it was in 2 Corinthians, but I, I wasn't right. sure. Um, we got we got a question from Samuel. I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of your name, Samuel Borasa. Uh, he asks, "Does William Lane Craig think the Enuma Elish is pertinent to understand the ancient Near Eastern context in which Genesis was written, even if the Enuma Elish is not exactly a creation story contrary to Genesis?" I think that it's very indirectly relevant. Uh, I think that it's um, not a direct source of any of the motifs that we find in Genesis, but I think that it's indirectly relevant in showing us what uh, an ancient creation myth uh, can look like in, in describing Marduk's creation of the cosmos. And I think it's particularly instructive for those who have an overly wooden literalistic approach 
to these ancient Near Eastern myths because the Enuma Elish is very clearly not meant to be interpreted in a sort of literalistic way. Rather, it is a figurative and metaphorical account. He's got a follow-up question here. He, uh, second question, unrelated to, oh, I guess it's not a follow-up question. <laughs> Unrela unrelated to Genesis, one, what area of Molinism does William Lane Craig thinks more work needs to be done? Oh. And two, what mm. advice would he give? Uh, would he give as a good way to introduce Molinism in the church and to lay people? Oh man, those are questions that I haven't really thought about. Uh, I think that probably the ongoing application of Molinism to different theological issues could be very fruitful. I've applied it to things like the fate of the unevangelized, to inspiration of scripture. Uh, Thomas Flint has applied it to papal infallibility. Del Ratch has applied it to um, creation and evolution. I've also applied it to the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Okay, and I think that it is very fruitful in its application to other theological questions. I, I think it even could be applied to defend the doctrine of limited atonement for our reformed brethren who want to hold to that. So it has great theological fruitfulness. Um, how to introduce it best might be through these biblical stories that you mentioned, Evan. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a paradigm example of middle knowledge at work, where he tells his brothers at the end of the day, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and has brought this to pass. Uh, also, the um, story of uh, David in Kyla, where he inquires of this divining device called an ephod, whether if he stays in Kyla, Saul will come down and attack the city. And if he does, will the men of Kyla turn him over to Saul? That's another biblical illustration of this sort of middle knowledge on God's part. Um, and then finally, I think, too, appeal to examples in films like It's a Wonderful Life, which illustrates how the principal character's life, or how things would have gone if the principal character had never been born. Or one of my favorites, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, is a wonderful example of the spirit of Christmas yet to come showing Scrooge what would happen if Scrooge were not to repent. Uh, he doesn't show him visions of the future or mere possibilities, but he gives him this counterfactual knowledge of the future. So you can use these illustrations like A Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life to get people thinking about these questions and whether God knows what would happen if things were to go differently. 
Yeah, and uh, Dr. Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries and I are both big Marvel nerds, and he's got he's got a couple of articles on freethinkingministries.com in which he uses Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame as <laughs> you know as an analogy because Dr. Strange he's looking at these alternate futures, taking into account uh, what all of the heroes and villains would do to determine which one would result in them defeating Thanos and saving the universe. And he, and at the end of the movie, he gives the time stone over to Thanos and it looks horrible. It looks like, why, we're like, why in the world did you do that? But he knew that if he didn't give the stone over to Thanos, then the events that proceeded and, and went into the second movie, uh, they would not occur. And yeah. um, of course, God is different. Uh, you know, God doesn't have to look into the future. He knows it innately, but it's it's good to it's a good illustration to help you wrap your mind yeah. around the idea of, you know, well, that's uh, a generational difference that my illustrations will come from a Christmas Carol and it's a wonderful life and yours come from Marvel comic books. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, here's um, Slam RN. He asks, he's asking about the Neanderthal spears. He says the spears predate the age of Neanderthal by convention taken to have emerged 300,000 years ago and are, and are associated with Homo heidelbergensis. Oh, I guess that's just a comment, not a question. Right. Uh, here's the, an actual question. Shermigan spears that I spoke of. Yeah, yeah, that was just a that was just a comment. Um, here's a question: uh, It's how does Doctor here does how does Doctor Craig incorporate the inner witness into his work? And I think and here I, he's referring to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. That's what I take him to be referring to as well. In the chapter that I just completed in my systematic philosophical theology, um, I defend the view that we are epistemically justified in Christian belief, not simply on the basis of the arguments and evidence, but rather on the grounds of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And I think that this is uh, a perfectly um, justified way of forming uh, rational beliefs in Christian truth claims. Indeed, I'm inclined to say that the inner witness of the Holy Spirit is an intrinsic defeater of the defeaters brought against Christian belief. Even for the person who has no good answer to the objections brought against Christian belief, he can be rational in continuing to believe on the basis of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, because that inner witness exceeds the warrant that these ostensible defeaters have, and therefore simply overwhelm them. Now, uh, I forgot to ask one of Sam's uh, other questions, the one that he titled the, the less serious question. He writes, quote, I am a member of the group in support of the resurrection of William Lane Craig's beard. And we would like to ask William Lane Craig if he will consider bringing back his beard and if he thinks dyeing it will resolve the issue of making him look old. And he also says, uh, I am asking this on my own, but other people in the group have mentioned these concerns in the comment section and posts. 
No, I will not. <laughs> it, it's not coming back. It's it's gone forever, folks. So, uh, e Eli Height. Eli Haitov from Israel. He he could not join the oh. live stream either, but he uh, he sent this question to me over uh, Facebook Messenger and wanted me to ask you. He uh, how often you are planning to teach on campus at Biola University for the next three years? That's a real good question. Right now, because Biola is in California, they are shut down. California is not permitting any classes to be held in person. It's extremely restrictive. So I normally would be teaching there in January, but this year uh, I was not able to go because there are no on-campus classes. So I do not know what the future holds in that regard. Uh, this is a question I received a few hours ago from Caleb Jackson, who also is going to be watching this later and couldn't attend live. Uh, he he sent he asked um, Dr. Craig, "What is your opinion on the phenomenon of Muslims having dreams of Jesus that convert them to Christianity? And do you think it's good evidence for the truth of the Christian faith?" Well, it it can be good evidence for them. I don't think somebody else is having a, a dream is necessarily good evidence for you if it's not your dream. But who am I to judge the veridicality of their dreams uh, or to say that God hasn't sent them a dream? I remember speaking to Nabil Qureshi, the late Christian apologist, about remarkable dreams that he had as a non-Christian seeking God, leading him to Christ. And I said, Nabil, I have a very vivid technicolor dream life. I have all kinds of dr vivid dreams all the time, and they're crazy. They're just incoherent. And I said, why would you think that this dream that you had is really from God? And he said to me, Bill, it, it just had a reality about it that was so indisputable. He said, I, I couldn't deny it. Uh, so for Nabil, he was absolutely convinced that God had given him this dream. And I would never presume to say that, therefore, this was non-veridical. Yeah, I, I haven't like done a, an intense study on this or anything, but I have uh, heard about cases like this. Um, and some of them are really interesting. Some of them are like... Uh, they're not necessarily Muslims, but they are non-Christians, and they they have dreams of Jesus. They don't know they've they've never even heard of Jesus. They don't they don't even know what Christianity is, and they 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 have this dream, and then like maybe later they meet these missionaries that preach the gospel to them, and they they make the connection, and it's just really really cool. Uh, I think I think that this could be part of an apologetic when talking about the the problem of the unevangelized. You know, if if yeah. God need if God needs to, He can reach out to someone in some yes. uh, unreached place uh, in a dream. Mm -hmm. So, Samuel Barasa 
asks, William Lane Craig has changed his mind regarding the mortality of humans with his study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 44. Does he think this new understanding of mortality makes conditionalism more plausible, even if false? And he follows that up with uh -huh. meaning that immortality belongs only to God, and humans that are separated from God would not have immortality and therefore eventually be annihilated. Um, I'm really impressed with how well Samuel knows my work. That is a very uh, subtle point that I'm surprised he even was aware of. But it's true. I used to think that human mortality and death were the result of the fall. But then in my study of the historical Adam, uh, reflecting on 1 Corinthians 15, 44 to 45, uh, it struck me so forcefully that Adam is created with a soma psuchikon, that is to say, a, a mortal body. Um, and that was a, a, a revolution for me. And I suddenly read the Genesis narratives in a new light um, because when Adam and Eve uh, did sin, they didn't just drop over dead physically, but they were then alienated from God. There was a kind of spiritual death that occurred. And moreover, if they were already immortal in the garden, the tree of life would serve no purpose whatsoever. Um, so it seems to me that Adam and Eve were plausibly created mortal um, and, and therefore would have died um, anyway, eventually. Now, I don't see how that gives any support to conditional immortality because it was never a claim that um, immortality involved the ability of the body to um, survive without death. I, I, it's, it's all about the soul, I think, and then the resurrection of the body. So if Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would have died anyway. Their souls would have gone to be with God. That's where in Judaism, uh, souls were thought to go during the intermediate period. Souls went to be with God. And then at the resurrection, they would be raised from the dead uh, and reunited with their souls to live forever. And I think that the scripture teaches a resurrection of the unjust as well and their judgment. Um, and so I, I don't see that this provides any significant support for uh, conditional mortal, uh, immortality. Uh, I've, I've never found the... Um the whole Genesis three uh, argument as good art as good evidence for conditional immortality, because it is talking about just their physical life. And I, I don't see how that's how, I mean, you have physical death being brought into the world, but that doesn't mean that, that, that they'll be totally annihilated. I think, I think conditionalists need to stop using that argument. We got a lot better arguments that we can we can use. We don't have to point to the tree of knowledge and the tree of good and evil. That's just a really weak point. Um, Slam R N asks, since the tree of life shows up in Revelation, 
Does Dr. Craig think somehow that the ungodly have access to it or do not need access to the tree of life? Thank you. Yeah, oh, I don't think they need to have access to it. Remember, I said they do not have life in the spiritual sense. This is eternal death. It's eternal existence, but it is separated from God, the source of spiritual life. So um, I'm not talking about life in the sense that the, the tree of life symbolizes in the book of Revelation, the eternal life that one has with God. Okay, so that's that's all the questions that we have. I'd, I'd be willing to end it here. If any of you have any questions you haven't asked yet, go ahead and type them up quickly. Because um, otherwise, if that's if that's all, we're, we've gone an hour and seven minutes. Okay, I will just I'll, I'll just do one more. This is from Barely Protestant. Uh, he says, question, I find myself drawn to some understanding of presuppositional apologetics, but find evidentialist slash classical apologetics as important, too. What can be reconciled between the two? Oh, this is a wonderful question, and I would encourage you to read my chapter on faith and reason in Reasonable Faith. And this is the way I put them together. The fundamental way in which we know that our faith is true is through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But the way in which we show our faith to be true is by presenting arguments and evidence. And so by distinguishing between knowing and showing, we can put these two points together. We know our faith is true through the inner witness of the Spirit, but we show that it's true by presenting arguments and evidence in support of what we know to be true. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Craig, for coming on the Cerebral Faith podcast and the first ever live streamed podcast. This, this has been a very enjoyable time. We've talked about a lot of good subjects, different subjects, and uh, it was just really great having you on. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. So before I end, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, SlamRN, James Godomsky, Andre Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to support the, the ministry of Cerebral Faith, go to patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith, and uh, you'll get a whole bunch of good things. You'll get early access to the blog posts, early access to the podcast episodes, um, er, very, sometimes very early access to the YouTube videos. Obviously not this one because it's live streamed, but sometimes you'll get early access to the YouTube videos weeks, sometimes even months before the public does. Um, and just a whole bunch of other good stuff that you can get in, uh, in exchange for a monthly financial donation. Um, thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Where's my Google Chrome? Uh, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you.